Life East, 11 o'clock. Good morning. How are we doing? Wow. That's, I feel super confident now with all that noise that was just made. Let's try it. You got it, Rory. We'll make it. I always say the greatest sermons are the ones where you preach them and don't die at the end. So, low expectations. <laughs> if we haven't had the chance to meet before, my name's Rory. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad that you joined us here at New Life. Oh, Tim Mazza coming in late. Um, we're so glad that you guys have joined us. Um, man, 11 o'clock. Happy to see you guys here. We're going to continue in this series that we're in on the book of First Timothy. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to First Timothy chapter 3. That's where we're going to hang out. Um, I'm going to try to get us through the whole chapter today. So it's only 16 verses, so uh, no small feat. But we're going to try to get all the way through. What we know about the book of First Timothy up to this point is that Paul is writing a letter to an apprentice of his, a dear friend of his named Timothy, who is pastoring a local church. And Paul is trying to give him some advice, some anecdotes, some way to think about what pastoring this group of people is like. But it's not just for him. It's not just a letter written to a church leader. It's a letter written to an entire church body, which means that the words in the book of First Timothy are not meant just for Timothy to sort of intake and then do something with. It's for the entire church. Men, women, kids, older people, people full of wisdom, whoever to receive and to take those words in and apply them into their lives. And so that's what we're going to attempt to do today, starting 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1. This is what Paul writes to Timothy. He says, Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer deserves a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. So many things. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, some wine but not much, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must, be, they must first be tested and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Paul goes on, verse 14, he says, Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of the Lord, and all God's people said, let's pray. God, there is something beautiful about what happens when men and women, young and old, black and white, 
wealthy and not so wealthy gather into a space together and find themselves fixated on the same thing, and that is Jesus. We know that it is in this space that you have called your bride, the church, that the goodness of society is at hand, that the focus of our intention is that the world would be transformed into the kingdom of God. And so, Holy Spirit, as we gather, as we read these scriptures, as we attempt to glean wisdom from them, would you open our eyes to see what it is that you are doing in our midst? Would you open our ears to hear the challenge of the scriptures and open our ears to hear the grace and the mercy that accompanies that challenge for the places that we have just not gotten it right? Holy Spirit, we ask that you would step into this space with us, that you would be the one who teaches and instructs us. Would you speak words to us that are beyond the text? Would you speak words to us that are beyond the words of the preacher? Would you speak to us in ways that would only make sense to us and that our lives might be changed forever because of it? God, we ask all of this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can sort of hear it in Paul's writing as he's penning this letter to Timothy that there's sort of a question lurking behind it, which is when Paul thinks about the church, this body, this mob, this group of people that gather together on a Sundays, an inevitable question sort of arises, which is, so who's in charge here? Who's, who's making the decisions? Who's sort of guiding the direction that this thing is going? Who's in charge? I don't know about you, that's a question that I've asked before, not just in the church. It's the question you ask when you go to a restaurant and the food comes out and it's not exactly as you think it should be. And you look to your significant other and you say, now who's in charge here? And you ask for the manager and you make a scene. Or just me, okay. Um, or you find yourself in a room with a large group of people and things are going sideways and people are getting squirrely and everyone starts asking, well, who's actually in charge here? If you serve in children's ministry, this probably happens every week as you stand in a room with three and four-year-olds and they're beginning to take over the space. Who's actually in charge here? To which I look at Shailene Smith, our children's director. Who's in charge here? I can remember one of the very first jobs I had growing up was I worked at a shoe store in the mall called Finish Line. Some of you might be familiar with shoe stores that existed in these places called malls that we once visited. And I worked there and I remember, man, one of the biggest days for a shoe store in the mall was when a new pair of Jordans would release. Some of you know this because you were those people who bought Jordans on the day that they released. Some of you are parents who your kids are coercing you into buying them Jordans the day that they release. And I remember the biggest shoe release every year happened on December 23rd, two days before Christmas. And I can remember the year that I was working there. It was the black and white Jordan 11, the white mesh, the black patent leather, the purple on the bottom. I remember this because I coveted them for a long time. But now I worked there, so I was getting a pair. Nonetheless, we knew that this was going to be a big day. We had been allotted 80 pairs of shoes to sell, which for you guys might sound like not a lot, but that was a lot in the world of retail shoes. To have 80 pairs of shoes, man, that meant you had a lot of customers you could please. We were told that we needed to show up to the store a whole night before. We were going to open at 10 a.m. on the 23rd. On the 22nd, we needed to come in at 10 p.m. to get the store all ready for this because this was going to be a big deal. We pull up, myself, I'm just a lowly sales associate. I've worked part-time at this store, but it's myself and two of our store managers, and we show up to the mall that morning 
or that night, excuse me, at 10 p.m., and there are already not 10, not 20, not 30, but close to 50 people who have amassed outside of the mall door closest to this finish line. And we sort of look at each other and like, wow, this is this is wild. They're here like 12 hours early. They're going to open the mall with us. It was freezing outside. So we decided, okay, we'll let you into the mall. You can kind of hang out in the hallways or whatever, but we're going to go into the store. We've got to keep it shut and locked until 10 a.m. A couple hours go by and we're sort of getting things ready. And all of a sudden we begin to notice that there's not 50 people outside. There's not 60 people. There's not even 80 people. But now there's close to 100 people who have formed a mob outside of this gate of ours. And the door for us to this store is just a metal gate that you could shake. It is not sturdy at all. It's this gate and two panes of glass. A couple hours go by and our store owner, our store manager, excuse me, his name's Billy. Billy's starting to realize there's going to be more people here than we really know what to do with. So Billy goes, hey man, I'm going to go back and get some stuff taken care of. I got to get payroll ready. Um, Can you sort of like get this mob under control He looks at me and says, Rory, you're in charge. And I'm like, yeah, I am. (laughs) So before you know it, it's not 100 people. It's not 120 people. It's not 150 people. There are 200 or so people who have amassed outside of this mall door, and they are getting really antsy. They're starting to like push up against the window panes, and they're like, I'm watching them do the calculations. They're like, we could push through this window if we wanted to. They start shaking the gate a little bit. I feel like I'm in the middle of the French Revolution. Like it is, I'm starting to get a little stressed, but I'm in charge. So they yell out, Rory, who's in charge here? And I go, I'm in charge here. I go, you guys all need to calm down. And I don't know if you've ever told a mob to calm down, but they tend to do quite the opposite. Energy is getting bigger and bigger. And before you know it, there's not 200, there's not 250 people outside. There are 300 plus people who have amassed outside of this mall door. They're pushing each other. They're shoving each other. This f- fights are starting to break out. My manager comes out and goes, dude, what have, what have you done anything to fix this? And I was like, well, at one point I told him that we only had 80 pairs of shoes to sell and that didn't seem to calm them down much. So he goes, man, I think I'm gonna have to like call the police to get somebody out here. So he goes in the back, he disappears again. He calls the police and this mob is raging. I'm still standing there at the gate. It's just me guys. Like I'm not impressive at all. And I'm just standing there. This mob is raging and the police show up. Everyone starts to sort of like settle down. They get up to the gate and you know the very first question they ask, who's in charge here? And I go, um, Billy, <laughs> not I've had nothing to do with this, guys. I'm just a lowly store associate, and I went and hid in a bathroom for the next four hours until we opened. Listen, you've had those moments, whether it was yourself or someone else, where you're reading the terrain of a space, you're seeing the people that are around, you're seeing the circumstances, and someone starts asking, well, who's in charge? This is what's going on in the church. I would just propose to you in the early church in general. Masses of people are coming together focused around the person of Jesus, but when you get large amounts of people together, they start asking, who's in charge? How's this thing going to be operated. And what we know about the early church is that there are pastors who seem to be set in some form of leadership, and then there's elders and deacons and overseers who help play sort of leadership in that space. What's interesting, though, is as Paul begins to undertake in this chapter what it looks like to be an overseer, an elder, and a deacon, is he doesn't really get super specific about who it is that's an elder or a deacon, although that's often how passages like this get taught, right? We look specifically at the pronouns and we say, well, what it must mean is that a man can be a deacon and an elder, but maybe a woman can be a deacon if you look at the language this way. I don't think Paul's like super interested in that. 
What Paul doesn't seem to do is say like, hey, Timothy, I know you got this list of leaders that are really gifted. This person can do it. This person can do it. This person can't do it. He doesn't do that. What, Tim, what Paul does as he writes to Timothy is lays out a picture of not who can help lead in the church, but what are the qualities of a person who is supposed to help lead in the church. And you see it pretty quickly. He, he begins to write, just topping back through this to look at all the qualifications. He says, now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him and must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. He's, this is a long list. This is extensive. He must also give, have a good reputation with outsiders. So recognize Paul's saying, Timothy, it's not enough that they've just kind of got their lives in order in the church. They need to be people who outside of the church, people who are of different walks of life, of different belief systems, of different ideas are looking at them and still have some level of respect for them. Jumping down to verse eight, he says in the same way, talking about deacons now, there doesn't seem to be a clear line of delineation between the two. They're somehow grouped together in this space. They're to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. And then jumping down just another couple verses, he says a deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household. Well, a couple things that I noticed about this first is that when Paul sort of begins to lay out these qualifications, the first thing that he says is that this is a noble task. And we can get that. If you're going to choose to sort of just throw yourself into these qualifications and say, I'm going to try to live my life this way, it's noble to carry it out. But notice what Paul doesn't say. He's talking about who's going to lead the church, what kind of people you're looking for. He doesn't say it needs to be noble people. In other words, he doesn't look at Timothy and say, you know who needs to lead the church? Are the people with money? Are the people with power? Are the people with social equity? He doesn't say that. He says anyone can be in a space to step in and lead. It's about the character that they personify. It's not about their social standing or the power that they wield. It's about what's going on, what God is doing in their heart. This is sort of an underlying idea all across the scriptures, that God is never quite above using anyone to move the kingdom forward or to advance the gospel. We see this even in the Old Testament. I think about when the spies are sent into Jericho. Some of you can remember this story. And they encounter trouble and things get difficult. And the way that they're rescued is not by a local politician who shows up and says, hey, let me handle this. They're not rescued by an army. They're rescued by a woman named Rahab who was a prostitute. And somehow in the midst of her interactions with them, recognize that God, the God of Israel, is doing something in this space. And she wants to be on that side of history. We see it also with the person of David. You know King David. But what, but what happens with David is he doesn't begin as a king. David is this lowly shepherd out on the back 40 with sheep and in dirt and killing bears to protect his sheep. He's, he's not this noble kind of character. And then all of a sudden he's anointed and appointed king. But what we know about David, even as that goes on, is that he's called what? A man after God's own heart. He's not a man who's pursuing power and prestige. He's just this lowly shepherd who has been raised in the leadership. I even think last week, Pastor Andrew Arndt gave a great message on the space women occupy in the church and the way Paul was writing this to Timothy. I think about some women that Jesus encountered it's in the book of Luke. Some of you have read this before. It simply says this, that after this, 
Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, the 12 being his primary disciples, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, and if you're like me, one would be enough to sort of figure things out, but seven is a lot. But she's not considered of high prestige. A woman in general wasn't considered of high prestige, but a woman who had had seven demons in her and people witnessed them leave, not in the greatest standing. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Now she's wealth adjacent. She's helping manage the financial books of someone with power. And then Susanna and many others, these women were helping to support them out of their own means. Listen, Jesus constantly raised the status of women, but what we see just in this moment, there's three women from three completely different walks of life that Jesus elevates, and they find some role in helping lead the the advancement of the gospel. This is what's happening all throughout the scriptures. It's never about if you find yourself in a place of nobility, of power, and prestige. The challenge is, are you willing to live a life of someone who is noble by the purest definition, someone who is good, pure of heart, pure of spirit? This is what Paul is inviting these leaders, these elders, these deacons into as leaders in the local church. Now, it would take a long time to sort of hit on everything that Paul lays out for them, but there are two things that get repeated frequently in this little section of text. The first one is this, is that he says that whoever is an elder or a deacon is to be faithful to their spouse. Now, most of us are like, well, yeah, duh, you, you, know, you get married, you have one spouse, you stay faithful to them. And that's one way that you could read the text. But, but maybe a better way to understand the way the Greek is sort of being written out there is it's not just about being faithful in your like intimacy or like relationship that way. The way that Paul uses the word faithful is to say that you and your spouse are not divided on things. It doesn't mean that you don't disagree. We're all humans. But it's that you're not divided on where you're going. Listen, I can think about plenty of times in my life where my wife and I, we're, we're going about, we're trying to handle life as it comes at us, right? You have kids, you have careers, you have money, you have all these things that pop in and out of life, and you're all trying to go in one direction, but so easily, and if you've been married in here for any amount of time, you know how this works, you all of a sudden can be doing so much that before you know it, you're sort of moving like this. You're headed in the same direction, but you're certainly not unified. Many of you have experienced this in your marriage. And what Paul's sort of challenges to these elders and these deacons is not just be faithful to your spouse relationally, but can you fight to not be divided from your spouse as you're walking alongside them, leading with them? That it's not a division into parts, but that you are moving like one body, that you are on the same page, that you fight to stay on the same page. It doesn't mean that there aren't challenges that come up that you don't have answers for. It doesn't even mean there aren't challenges that don't come up that you don't have different opinions on. But are you fighting to stay on the same page? So friends, let me just ask you this morning, when you think about the way that Paul describes the marriages of the elders and the deacons and the overseers, does that describe your marriage? Is your marriage one where it's faithful in the truest sense of like oneness where you and your spouse are fighting to stay on the same page as difficulties with your kids come up, you're sitting down, you're having the difficult conversations. I think the idea Paul is painting here is that if you aren't doing that, what happens is that eventually seeps into the church and you and your spouse are coming in and you're sitting and hearing a message. And what's happening is the husband is going, I'm so glad the preacher's talking to my wife this morning. 
and the wife is going, I'm so glad the preacher is talking to my husband this morning. Paul is saying the challenge, he repeats it, elders, deacons, overseers, whatever, be on the same page with your spouse. Paul seems to be fascinated with the life for these leaders outside of the church because the other command that's sort of repeated in here is he challenges them to consider how they're managing their home. I mean, think about this. He's, he's saying to them at one point, he says the words, how could someone be trusted to lead in the church if they couldn't be trusted to manage their own home? Now, when you hear that, you sort of think manage like, you know, you're a manager. You're just trying to make sure that everything is working okay. But the, maybe the better way to understand what Paul is getting at here is the Greek word that's used there, the definition for it is two parts. It's to diligently pay attention to something and to lead by example. So when he says manage your home, what he's saying is he's asking the question, are you, are you diligently paying attention to what is going on in your home? Are you paying attention to what is going on with your spouse, with your kids, with the dog, with the cat, whatever? And are you also leading by example? It's one challenge to say, are you aware of what's going on? Are you aware of what's going on in the life of your kids? Are you really aware of what's going on in the life of your spouse? Are you aware of the difficulties they're feeling, the challenges that they're facing, the things going on at work and their vocation? But also, are you leading by example? Are, are you showing them, does, I, I think a better way to think about this is, do your kids and your spouse and the cat and the dog, when they look at you, do they understand what it means to be rested and refreshed? Or do all they know about their parents is that their parents never really take time off? That even when they take vacation, they're still on their computer. Are, are you giving a formational example of what it means to have fun in your family? I, I think about this all the time. The amount of families I talk to and I hear phrases like, Man, we had so the kids had soccer this weekend, and it was awful. So you signed your kids up for a fun extracurricular activity, and it was awful. What they have now learned from us as parents is that we don't know how to have fun. We don't know how to enjoy simple joys in our lives. What Paul is challenging these leaders with is are you creating an example in your home that is leading to the proper formation of your kids and the people you love? It's a question to ponder. Because most of us just move through life because we let life move us along. Wherever our career goes, we follow it. Wherever our money goes, we follow it. Wherever our stress and anxiety goes, we follow it. But what Paul is presenting as a challenge is, are you considering what is happening within the four walls of your house. And here's why that's so fascinating. The two things that he repeats in this text are not questions about what goes on in the four walls of the church. Think about it. Paul doesn't beat down a dead horse of, hey, have you are you guys programming your worship services really good? Are you making sure that there's like enough lighting and is the like dry ice coming from behind the stage at a sufficient rate? Are you guys making sure that your sermons are like top notch? Are you making sure that the songs, are, are you making sure that there's lyrics on the slides to which we would have failed today? Listen, he, that's not what Paul says. Paul is not all that concerned with just what's happening in the church. He's concerned with the lives of the people who are serving 
in the church. He raises this reality for us that what defines the success of Christian service often has very little to do with what happens in the church. It it often has very little to do with how good of a preacher I am. The success of me as a pastor has far more to do based on this text with my family, my kids, my spouse. It has a lot less to do with if you guys think I'm a great communicator or not. It doesn't mean that we, you know, phone it in or don't try to have church and do it in a really meaningful way and create connections for people. But that's not the judgment of it. Listen, Andrew Arndt, Jesus is not going to look at him someday and be like, man, you preached some really great sermons. Jesus is going to have a lot of questions for him about the kind of man, the kind of spouse, the kind of husband that he was, the kind of dad that he was. And what we love about serving at New Life East with someone like him, with people like Colin and Andy, is that we see that. We see that play out. The challenge that's being presented by Paul is that the way your life looks outside of these four walls is just as important, if not more important, than what happens in here. And I am only saying that to you today because so many of you have gone to churches where that is not said or it's not lived. And you've seen the complete opposite. You've seen a pastor get on stage completely tidy. You've seen a deacon or an elder lead in a strong way, but then you hear stories or you see things that make you go, what? I don't know if I can trust what's happening in this space. For full transparency, we are going to attempt to be the kind of pastors, leaders, deacons, elders, whatever, that you can trust in a space like this. So Paul teased this off, talking about the deacons and the overseers and the elders. And then he makes this small turn In verse 11, he says, in the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. Now, you know what's interesting? Andrew gave a great talk on women in in the church, so I don't need to feel the need to rehash that. But the way that Paul words this is quite interesting to me. He says, in the same way, so he's somehow connecting these women to what's going on in the broader sense of the passage. But he says that these women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy and everything. We would say that's good behavior for just anyone. But I love the phrasing that he uses of worthy of respect. The language there is more like royalty, supposed to be dignified. The idea that he's presenting is that he's challenging women to be the kind of women that when they walk into church, the little girls in the room look up at them and say, man, I want to be like them someday. This is the picture that Paul's painting about women in the church. Notice he doesn't attach that phrase to the men in the church. It doesn't necessarily mean anything, but he does attach it to the women in the church. He says, women, when you walk into a space, would your words and your actions and your behavior be such that when little girls see you, they go, oh my gosh, I want to be like her someday when I grow up. You know what I love about New Life East is there is no shortage of women that are like that here. It's not like we look around and we can only see the good things that guys produce. We recognize the women who, when you walk into a room, little girls look up to you and say, man, we are so thankful that you're here. I think of Kelly Kapfer and the presence that she holds in children's ministry on a Sunday. The kids look up to her. I think of Shailene and Riley who lead in our children's ministry and do the same thing. I also think of people like Sandy Culbertson who give us a picture of what wise, strong women look like as they're a part of our church. I think of Katie Bear, who's a part of our church. I think of all sorts of women who call New Life East home, who are exactly modeling what it is that Paul is talking about. 
that you're the kind of people that when you walk into a room, not just little girls, but little boys and, and adults look at you and go, man, we want to be like you when we grow up because you're leading, you're modeling your life in such an incredible way. So thank you for that. You make this church better because of that. Now, if you're like me and you read this passage, you start to wonder how any of this really applies to you because just by a show of hands, let's have fun. How many of you are elders or deacons in this room? Right. Um, By a show of hands, how many of you are women in this room? Okay, so 50%, maybe a little less today. So at best, this sermon applies to 50% of the people in this room and it's just the women and it was one verse. It makes it a little bit of a hard passage to teach unless there's more going on here and at which we should read Paul's last couple of verses in this, which we've read a few times already. He says, although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, let me tell you something about that word people. The word there in the Greek is one. It's not a gender specific term which means it is a general term. It is not just about how the elders and deacons ought to behave themselves. It's not just about how the women are to carry themselves. Paul is writing a letter to Timothy so that he knows how all of the church should carry themselves. Here's what that should challenge in us. When we read a passage like this about the elders and the deacons, what we don't get to do is go, well, I'm not an elder and I'm not a deacon, so I don't have to do any of that. It's also men in the room. You can't read it and go, well, I'm not a woman, so it doesn't matter how I talk or how I carry myself. The way that Paul sees the like ethic and behavioral posture of the gospel formed in the church is that when we read about how leaders should behave, everyone takes on that behavior, which means when Paul is challenging them about the state of their household, That's not a challenge just specifically to the people who lead in the church. It's a challenge for all of us. When there's a challenge in there about the way we use our words, the way we carry ourselves, it's not just for the elders and the pastors and the people who stand on this platform. It's for all of us in the house. When he challenges the women to be perceived in a way that they use their words wisely and they carry themselves in a way that people, the next generation looks up to them. It's not just specific to women. We don't get, guys, we don't get to just go, ah, they'll figure it out. Put that on the shoulders of the women. They can carry it. What Paul is writing is an edict for the whole church, that all of us would read this text and be moved by it and challenge that our behavior ought ought to resemble the challenge that's placed on all leaders. Because how unfair would it be if, the, if you guys placed an expectation on the people who stood on this platform, but it was an expectation that you yourself were unwilling to carry? It's unfair. Equally, it would be unfair if me as a church leader, I looked at you and said, you know what, you need to, you need to have all these spiritual practices written down or planned out. You need to behave at your best. You need to carry yourself with dignity And what you knew about me behind the scenes is that I did none of those things. What Paul is challenging the whole church with, and I think Timothy was supposed to read himself in here as well, is that all of us have a calling placed on our lives because we have said yes to the gospel. 
It's not a calling of guilt. It's not a calling of shame of the places we haven't gotten these things right. Because let's be honest, we don't always get these things right. But the challenge is, whether you're a leader, a man, a woman, or not, can you carry the yoke of Jesus to live as though your life has been given over to the gospel? This is the challenge. Here's what I also know to be true. I know the stories of some of you who sit in this room right now. I know the reality that some of you are only at New Life East because you've been at a church before where you saw leaders, elders, overseers, deacons do everything but these things. You saw them lead with an iron fist. They were not healing people. They were harmful people. They were not people that you felt like you could trust. They were people who time after time after time caused pain and grief in your life. I know that there are many of you who sit in this room and what you've seen of a description like this of church elders and deacons and leaders is the complete opposite. Some of you have horror stories of being cornered by an elder or a deacon and being yelled at. Some of you have difficult experiences of pastors letting you down and wounding you. And can I just say to you this morning, I am so sorry that that is what you've experienced. The difficulty and the challenge, the hurdle even for some of us is that those elders and deacons that you've seen and experienced are not the standard of leadership in the church. Can I tell you the other truth though? Neither am I. Neither is Andrew, neither is Colin, neither is Andy, neither is Shailene, neither is Ra- We are not the standard at which Christian leadership is set. How do we know that? Because of the way Paul lands the plane on this text. He says these last few words. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Friends, that is not a descriptor of me. That is a descriptor of Jesus himself. The standard for Christian leadership is never the person on a platform. It is Jesus himself. So there are people who have failed you, and I don't say this to belittle that pain, but they weren't the standard in the first place. I will let you down. Some of you are like, already have. (laughs) I am not the standard of Christian leadership. Andrew will let you down. He is not the standard of Christian leadership. Brady Boyd will let you down. He is not the standard of Christian leadership. What Paul says is there is one standard. The image that Paul is pointing to as he's talking to these deacons, to these elders, and to these women is not to Timothy. He's not saying be like Timothy. He doesn't say, hey, I've got this friend Titus. He's real great. He doesn't say, hey, I've met Peter. He's all right. He says the only standard to compare yourself to and strive for is Jesus. That's it, friends. Which gives us a challenge that if our lives have been set up to match anyone who is not Jesus, it's time to shift it. We're not living up to the standard of pastor's and leaders before us. You're not living up to the standards of dads and parents before you. You're not living up to the standards of your boss, 
your standard is one and one only, and it's Jesus. Would you stand as we prepare to take communion together? There's no better time to approach the table because what we recognize at the table is that Jesus proved with his very life that the only appropriate way to lead and be connected to humanity was to sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice. And so we come to the table remembering that on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Every time you eat, would you do this in remembrance of me? That he also that same night took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's a new promise for you that he will never leave nor forsake you, that no matter what pain you have been through, no matter how many times the church and its leaders have let you down, he himself, Jesus will never leave you. And so I wanna invite our communion servers to come forward. What we're gonna do here in just a moment is every section is going to exit to your right. I know we're switching it up a little bit, which means this section is gonna come down this aisle right here. This section is gonna come down the center aisle. This section, you guys are going to make your way down this aisle. And my friend over here, you're going to make your way down this aisle. And we're going to serve you communion. There's going to be bread. You can take that bread. You can dip it into the juice. You can take that wafer then back to your seat with your friends, with your family. Pray together. Take time to eat it on your own. As we get ready to come forward for communion, allow me to pray over you this morning. God, we... We recognize in these moments the beauty of the church and we also recognize the potential for failure and the frailty of what it is to be the church. That we stand in this space as people who have been chosen and called by God into a life of goodness and holiness and nobility. We also recognize that there is a burden placed on leaders in the church, not just pastors, but those who lead table groups and children's ministry and student ministry and serve communion and serve in local outreach and do all sorts of things that when we step into those spaces of leadership, you call something more out of us, but that something more is never meant just for the leader. It's meant for all of us. So God, as we approach the table this morning, we ask two things, that you would give us a renewed picture of your life, death, and resurrection that is the picture of ultimate service and leadership in the world, that you have stepped into, you stepped into human space and time and gave your life as a picture of what it means to lead us somewhere. But this morning, we also pray over the people who have been deeply hurt and wounded by those who have claimed leadership in the church. God, what we ask is that you would protect New Life East from being a place of pain for people, that it would be a place of healing, that anyone who identifies as a leader in this space would be a safe space for someone. We ask that you would give us grace and mercy for the places that we don't get it right. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would eradicate any sense of self-righteousness, any sense of misuse of power that we would stand before you as pure and blameless as an entire body of Christ. And would you give us a picture of the love that you have for us in this moment? We ask all this in the name of Jesus.
Amen.